You could build the best, perfect product in the world, but if people don't have a need for it, if they don't care about it, if it doesn't excite them, then mm -hmm. you have nothing. Right. You know, you have a perfect yeah. product that's going nowhere. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Steve Hoffman, founder and CEO of Founderspace, a global startup accelerator. Founderspace has 50 partners in 22 countries and was founded in January of 2010. Steve, welcome to the show. Carol, fantastic to be here. Well, I am happy to have you because I think you're doing something super interesting. Tell me a little bit more about Founderspace and what it means when you say 50 partners. So Founderspace, actually, we began in San Francisco. Mm. Uh, we opened our incubator there and we started to grow. This was back you know, over a decade ago mm. and everybody was coming to Silicon Valley to find out the Silicon Valley magic. So we, at first, we were taking in entrepreneurs from all over the world because we became known as kind of the landing pad for where foreign entrepreneurs would come and enter Silicon Valley. And then we started to be invited overseas. So by governments, by different accelerators, different institutions, we would actually go over there, send our instructors over to run courses. And in the process, we set up some of our own founder space branded incubators. Mm -hmm. We also partnered with existing incubators where they run the whole show. And we literally come in with our instructors and give kind of a dose of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So when we say partners, the partners are usually other incubators. Some of them are government agencies that run incubators, or they are our business partners who run founder space overseas with us. Well, that's really interesting. What, what was the impetus behind this business for you? The impetus, well, I'd done three venture-funded startups. I'd done a bootstrap startup. Right, which we're going to talk about, yeah. And, you know, I'm a passionate entrepreneur for everybody who knows me. And I literally, my friends started to come to me and they were like, help me. Like, how do I, how did you Got raise it. your money? What did you go through? Like, mm -hmm. you can you look at my business plan? Mm -hmm. And I started to coach them. And I have a blog that became popular and people just started to come out of the woodwork. And so we at first we set up what we called roundtables before we really started, which was where we got a bunch of entrepreneurs. I invited some angel investors, some lawyers, other people to really mm -hmm. help them at the early stages. And then a guy I knew who later became my partner, he had been running one of the successful co-working spaces, Soma Central in San Francisco. And he's like, look, I have this whole section of space we're not even using. And I was like, well, let's join forces and open founder space, call it founder space there and get entrepreneurs and run this accelerator. So what's the, dis the difference or distinction, you know, um, among founder space, tech stars? I, I mean, you know, there's a million of them out there right now, accelerators. How do you oh, yeah. compare, contrast yourself to some of these other ones? Well, there were fewer when I began, but there's YC, Y Combinator, 500 right. startups, all these. Right. We began in a similar way to all of them. Mm -hmm. But where we ended up diverging was we saw an opportunity. Most of them were running three-month, six-month programs where you'd bring an entrepreneur in and they would mm -hmm. just go through this whole program maybe one day or one night right. a week. Right. For, and then you'd have a demo day. Mm -hmm. Well, we started to see all these uh, overseas startups coming to Silicon Valley. They didn't have the money to stay well, three months or six months, you know, it's extremely expensive. Sure. They also wanted to accelerate it to figure out, is it even a good fit to come to Silicon Valley with my startup? And then there were governments who were actually had budgets. So they were paying for these entrepreneurs mm -hmm. to come for two weeks or three weeks or a month to figure it out, to see if it would work. And we started to partner with them. So we envisioned ourselves as this kind of gateway. We had a lot of startups at the beginning from Silicon Valley, um, U.S. startups. Mm -hmm. But then we started to combine those with overseas startups and create specialized programs. They're kind of 
instead of going one day a week for three months, literally you'd go two weeks every single day. And we would be, we had our instructors, we'd be running through a really set course of things. We'd introduce them to a lot of people and a lot of investors. At the end of the two weeks, we'd invite investors in knowing that it wasn't a three-month program, it was a two-week program. Mm -hmm. These were overseas startups and they wanted to come in and check them out. A lot of times they would, sometimes they would fund them, sometimes they would give them advice and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, whatever they could do to help them. And that became the core. What's the magic behind the two weeks, Steve? Because, you know, I've worked with hundreds of startups over my career and again, very familiar with the the various incubators and accelerators. And, you know, I I might think, and and this is where I'm kind of curious as to, you know, your opinion on this, right? And and, and why it's been successful is that two weeks could completely overwhelm somebody. There's too much information to take in in two weeks. A lot of people said that actually. They're like, oh, I got too much feedback from, you know, because we would literally bring in, we would open it up. We'd have mentors come in. They Mm. might talk to 30 mentors over the course of two weeks. And we're like, look, your Mm -hmm. job in this two weeks is you don't have to make any decisions right now. Your job is to absorb as much information as you can. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of them were going back overseas and then reflect on it and figure out, is this a good fit? Because you want a lot of points of view. You can't just trust like one or two people. You can't even trust me. I know, you know, I'm my own point of view. I'm, I think I'm right, but I'm not always right. right. So I want to give you a lot of points of view and I want to give you a lot of different relationships that you can Mm -hmm. follow up on. So Mm -hmm. yes, it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose. You're not going to be able to really work on your business during these two weeks in the sense of like doing business dev, because we're going to have you this whole time. Mm -hmm. But what you're really going to be focused on is we're going to show you what gets funded in Silicon Valley, what business models work, what don't, what doesn't, how does yours fit? And then you're going to get to talk to real investors, real other people who are really plugged in, and they're going to give you their opinion. And hopefully you will come away with that, knowing whether you should invest more time into going much deeper Mm-hmm. Or And a lot of our graduates, they would go on to like YC or other 500 startups, or they would just mm-hmm. do their business. They'd meet people, help them with their business. But that was the thing. It was a crash course in getting into Silicon Valley. Got it. Well, uh, earlier on, you talked a little bit about, you know, what you've done in the past. And I know after you got out of graduate school, you spent a year in Hollywood, uh, a year in Japan with Sega Games, and then had the brilliant idea that, hey, I, I'm 24 years old. I can do it in my first startup. And that was with your wife. It was. Tell me a little bit about that that particular startup. So we just took our savings and decided to gamble it all. We did not take money from family and friends. And this is something I advise other startups to do. You never know. Like this one turned out successful, but you never know. Oh, right. Like most startups fail right. uh, when they're when they're doing it. And I knew that it was really risky. So we're just, we're just going to spend our own money and we'll make do, like whatever we can do. So basically, I was lucky. I had a background in engineering. I could code, but I wasn't mm-hmm. a great coder. I wasn't brilliant, mm-hmm. but I was good enough. And I had this vision and it was really inspired by my vision. So I'd been working for Sega, the big game company. Right. And they had all these games like Virtua Fighter, which were really popular. Mm-hmm. And I was tired of working on fighting games. I wanted to make a game that was just as much fun as one of these shooter games, Mm -hmm. but that actually could teach people something, but wasn't, you wouldn't consider it educational. You would consider it fun. So my vision, it was called Gazillionaire. And the vision was, was that you're an entrepreneur. It's like what I do today. I teach entrepreneurs, ironically, but I was creating this thing, this game where you'd play it really fanciful, really fun. I did all the graphics. My wife and I did them all. We had a few other artists. We had sound designers, but it's really us. It was a labor of love. Mm -hmm. We put this game out there it was the early days. The internet barely existed. There were, people didn't browse the web. They only had what was called bulletin boards, BBSs, if mm-hmm. you can even recall, mm-hmm. and you'd upload it to these right. BBSs. So we created this shareware game that we uploaded to BBSs and said, like, if you want to buy this, there was no e-commerce. You send us the cash in an envelope or a check. Oh my God. We'll cash it and we'll mail you this stack of floppy disks. You know who bought our first game? Who? Lord Gek. But of course, a total geek called Lord Gek, <laughs> you know, and, and he so actually funny. lived not far from us just by it. chance. We invited him to our house for dinner. So we got to meet our first customer. And, but the game, which started off really small, wasn't super high tech, but really like uh, it was a very people loved the game. Like mm-hmm. it was, the gameplay was really refined and the graphics were crazy and silly mm-hmm. and people just loved it. 
It actually, the QA testers, quality assurance testers, mm -hmm. at the biggest PC game company in the world at the time, Spectrum, Spectrum Micropros, mm -hmm. they actually had downloaded it from the BBSs and become addicted to it, become hooked on it. And so this huge game company comes to us and says, we have to publish your game by Christmas. Like, we want to get this game out there. And they, we literally cut a deal with them and they put it nationwide. That's and, and awesome. At that time, retail was a big thing. We got into mm -hmm. all the retail stores. Mm -hmm. It did really well critically, did really well financially. And we went on to produce a series of these. And I tell you, it was a totally different experience than being in a venture-funded company. And I right. loved it. What year was this that you, that you and your wife started this company? Oh, this was like we began in 1992. So Just before was, the internet came to the public. Yeah, right? it was yeah. the early, yeah. early days um, wow. of the internet. And we just took it from there. We learned by doing. Like we had no experience. I was not, I didn't right. get an MBA. I didn't know business. Mm -hmm. I gone to creative part in film school, which was I was using the technical part. And then I just dove in. What were the mistakes you made back then in that in this company in Lava Mind? Well, by chance, there weren't too many big mistakes, a lot of little mistakes. So mm -hmm. I'm always impatient. Like I wanted to get that product to market really fast. Yeah. And I was cutting corners, but like, I was like, we're running out of money. We need to get this baby live. Like, <laughs> and then my wife was like, don't waste your time. You got to make it great. And so she pulled me back and uh, she made me redo the whole thing. Like mm -hmm. literally I wasted time going down one path. Like I don't know if people even recall, but there was a thing called DOS, Disk Operating System. Mm -hmm. So I made like a text version of it. And she was like, no, you've got to make a Windows version, like Windows, like yeah, Windows. So and it was Windows, the early yeah. days of Windows, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was like, but I don't know if I can even technically do that. Well, right. if we don't do that, it's not worth doing. So mm -hmm. we went down this wrong path, or I did. She course corrected me. We got it out there. And everything else like went really well. I mean, we were sort of blessed in a way mm -hmm. because... The thing was, this big game company that came to us, they had spent millions of dollars on the Star Trek franchise to make a game of that, literally millions of dollars. We were working wow. on like, our whole game might have cost $12,000 at the mm -hmm. end of the day, like mm -hmm. computers included, mm -hmm. like our laptops right. included. So they had spent millions. We had this little game, but they had missed, uh, They the game was running late. So they weren't going to book revenue in the calendar year. <laughs> and they, when they heard their QA testers were onto this crazy little game, they came to us. We figured that out. And that gave us enormous leverage. So we kept like all the rights to the game, which is like normally they would take all the rights. Mm -hmm. but we were like, no, you have to, because we we're mm -hmm. so passionate. We were worried that they would just dump it and they wouldn't follow up. So we kept all the rights. So we still own it. Like we still own every product we ever made. Awesome. Like, yeah. So, so you went off and started another startup called Spider Dance. Um, and this was your first foray into uh, institutional funding, correct? First foray, and it was brutal. Like, okay. It was brutal on so many levels and, and very educational. So what was Spider Dance or, and what had venture capitalists interested in giving you any money? So first of all, venture capitalists were not interested at all. And at okay. this point in time, you have to remember, they had no incubators. The right. VC community was very closed. Right. Like we couldn't even get meetings. Like it, we, we didn't know who to talk to. We didn't know yeah. anybody. I just produced yeah. my own little game. Like I didn't know how to get raised funding. So it was a real struggle from day one. Yeah. Uh, what we did was we had this massively multi-user gaming engine that one of my partners, he it was technical, brilliant guy. Mm -hmm. And it was the early days. He didn't have many massively multi-user games. So he had built this mm -hmm. out originally, licensed it to Microsoft to run a game, and then he owned it. Like my vision was we would create a platform where all the developers in the world could get on our spider dance platform and run their games. Only I went out to the game developers all around the Bay Area and none of them cared. Like they're like single players, fine. And like, if we go with you and make this multiplayer, then we want you to change all these things. And we want to give you a tiny, tiny bit of money. Yeah, right. So, so <laughs> literally there was yeah. no business. Mm -hmm. it, it was too early like with so many companies. So we had to pivot. So we pivoted away uh, from doing this, um, uh, this developer platform, which would have been a great business later on, to a new product we called Jabber Chat. And at this time, chat was really big. 
Like they didn't have instant messengers, but chat on websites, right. brand new. People mm-hmm. were chatting just like they would instant message. And we decided to create a game chat, like a, a gamified chat where you chat and play word games at the same time. And it was so much fun. Mm. And, and JavaScript was brand new. So we created this plugin where mm-hmm. anybody could actually cut and paste the JavaScript into their website. Then we got mm-hmm. hundreds of websites to sign up. And we applied to South by Southwest, won first prize, but we had no money, no <laughs> money coming in. And, you know, again, our funds are dwindling, right. you know, we're spending all the money we had. Yeah, right. And we look out there in, in this real world and we're like, we got to make money. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's this thing called internet advertising, brand new. So there's this company out there, this internet advertising company, mm-hmm. don't, they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And they said, we can put banner ads in your thing. So we're like, yeah, banner ads, banner ads, right. that'll be cool. So we were one of the first people to embed banner ads in a JavaScript plugin to a website. We had hundreds of sites using it, lots and lots of users. We waited a month to see how much money we'd get. Did you know how much we got? $13.58. And yeah. Practically bubkas. <laughs> yeah, like not even enough to buy our team a pizza. Yeah, like, right, yeah. We were like, oh my God, we're not making any money. So literally we had to abandon this great, start of an application because we had no venture funding. We had no money. And then we heard that MTV, Viacom, MTV wanted to produce an interactive TV show. We're like, yeah, maybe we'll do that. Like this is the startup journey. Like, so we literally didn't have, we didn't know how to synchronize online to on air. Nobody had figured that out at the time, but we did know we had a massively multi-user online engine. So we just started to, we got the number of the senior vice president of MTV Interactive. And we literally started to call him. We started to say, we have what you need. We are spider dance. We can deliver that product you're, you know, you want. Mm-hmm. Guess what? He never called back. Gosh, <laughs> never. There, there's a big surprise. No, but. I would have been shocked if he had called you back. Yes. So he just ignored, yeah. you know, MTV is bombarded by people who want to get on. Well, television. I mean, all, all, all executives are bombarded by people trying to sell them stuff. Yeah. And he didn't know. What that, that, that was, that was, I don't think it's any different now than it was then. Yeah, it's probably I, worse now. In fact, yeah. Or in, yes, but he didn't want to talk to us. Right. But my partner, because of her previous job in New York, had been invited to speak at CES, this big uh, consumer electronics sure. show. She got on the panel and like all great entrepreneurs, she started talking about our dream. Of We're going to build interactive television. We have this platform we're working on, blah, 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 blah. After she gave her talk, mm. somebody comes running up from the audience, barreling up, pushing through everybody, comes up right up to her and he says, you have exactly what I need. Yes, and guess who that was? I am the senior vice president of MTV Interactive. Yeah, of course. And she goes, I know, we've been leaving voicemails for you for the past month. So literally, within a few weeks, we had a deal signed for $350,000 with MTV. Yeah. We were off to the rodeo. It was like, that was the birth of our company. But it wasn't so easy. Like mm-hmm. 350,000 went to us, sounded like a lot of money. Yeah, but it's really not. She goes so fast. Yeah. And they wanted us to build something that had never been built before. Mm-hmm. They were like really worried. He was like, can you build this? You're a startup. Like this day, no, but big yeah. companies didn't work with startups. They worked right. with established companies. They're mm-hmm. like, we don't know if you can do this. Oh, we can do it. Absolutely. No problem. But how do you know? Well, we'll build it. <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. Like we had nothing to lose and everything to gain, like uh-huh. working with MTV. We were, we were like, we'll get it done. Don't worry. But, so he was always nervous, like from day one, but he had nobody else. So they went with us and we started to build that product and spend all our money because we had to make this work. And they had no AWS, nothing. Like right. we had to course, build, yeah. put all the servers in a co-location mm-hmm. facility, get a T1 line, things that people don't even think about today. That, well, right. Unless you're old like us. Yeah. Yeah. With a team of three engineers. Yeah. Like it was brutal because that's all mm-hmm. we could afford. Mm-hmm. And, but we were doing it and I was going out to raise money as a CEO. And literally I couldn't get through to Silicon Valley, but I managed in Hollywood to get through to this big uh, new, brand new venture fund run by Hollywood luminaries. Mm-hmm. Like one was, he was, you know, the head of NBC Universal. He had jumped onto this venture fund. Mm-hmm. He had Michael Milken, the junk bond king, mm-hmm. the former president of Sega USA, all mm-hmm. these different people like were on the board. Mm-hmm. We pitched them. And they said they would fund us. We got a lawyer to actually extend us credit for $60,000. Yeah. Went through the whole thing negotiating this one contract, like all 60K. And at the end of the contract, we were like, we were like, okay, we got $5 million. It's done. We went to them. And you know what they said? Mm. They're like, well, we actually changed our mind. We're going to fund you when you launch. 
we don't know if you're going to be a success when you launch. So we're going to wait. And we're like, but we need the money now. And they're like, no, we're going to wait. So we had no choice. We had no other investors on the line. I didn't know any other investors. So we're like, oh, this launch better work. So we get, we gear up for launch. Like we couldn't load test it. There was no software to test like how many mm-hmm. users. MTV was literally every single day running multiple ads across their whole network Wow. on what they called Web Riot. That was the name of the show. Amit Zappa was the host and they were bombarding to get people in there. We're like, can we handle this load? But our engineers were just working like night and day, just night and day. We put the product out there on the market and the day came. Like, And we had to be frame accurate. It couldn't be non-frame accurate because think about it. If the TV show was even you know a second ahead of the online show, people could cheat and they were right. winning real prizes. Right. They could see right. the answer on TV and cheat. So yeah. it had to be perfectly frame accurate. And it had to hold all these simultaneous users that we had mm-hmm. never done all at once, bombarding coming in. We launched the show. We're holding our breath. It's running perfectly, running perfectly. Four minutes into the show, it goes down. Oh, it crashes. Hey, a minute yeah. later, you know, 30 seconds later, yeah. the, the phone rings. I pick it up. It is a senior vice president right. of MTV, and he is using every curse word you could yeah, possibly imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, just wait a second. Be calm. Let me talk to my engineers. Finally got him off the phone, called my engineers. And I'm like, this system is down. They're going crazy. And they turned to me and said, it's not us. We are under a denial of service attack. Oh, interesting. Like there, are, there are trolls out there who saw all these ads and wanted to bring down MTV's hit show. Wow. Before. So they were bombarding us. And these days they didn't have the software, the firewalls mm-hmm. to protect it. It was all right. like hand built. So they were literally blocking IP addresses like manually. Like oh, That's so interesting. Within a couple minutes, the show went back on there and then it ran flawlessly, wow. flawlessly. Okay. We never had another show go down. We were like, it was like a miracle. So we did it. We pulled it off. We mm-hmm. go back to the venture firm. We're totally out of money. Like We had spent everything. Mm-hmm. Go back to these Hollywood sharks and we're like, give us our money. And they're like, okay, we'll give you the 5 million now, but we've changed our mind. We don't want to fund you at the valuation we told you we want to cut it in half. Hmm. What do you mean you want to cut it in half? Why? With the, flow, the show went flawlessly. Mm-hmm. Everything was perfect. We did everything we promised because they knew we were out of money and they don't call them vulture capitalists for nothing. Ugh, they nice. were like, they were the worst yeah. of like Hollywood and, yep, you know, yep, yep. so these people were squeezing us and we, we had a choice. Like either we walk off the abyss because we had no other funders and it was literally right before Thanksgiving and everybody, all the venture money goes away until after CES, like which is mid-January. So you you have November to Mm -hmm. mid-January. We walk off a cliff or we take the money from these despicable people. And we walked off the cliff. We said, screw you. We're not taking, we don't want you on our board. We don't want to look at you again. We don't care. You know, it's the idea, like we would be smarter to take your money, but we don't want to be in bed Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm, you. mm -hmm. And so we walked and we, Instantly regretted it because we were suddenly in a whole nother world of pain. Felt good to walk, I'll tell you. Felt great. Felt really bad when we woke up the next morning. Like we had to beg our employees to keep working without mm-hmm. money. Yeah, right. We had a hosting provider that we couldn't pay. We had MTV breathing down our back, mm-hmm. like, you know. And what what were we gonna do? So it was like the worst Christmas, Hanukkah, you know, Kwanzaa mm-hmm. you ever had. Christmas, like, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is, we were, we were. Uh, in a world of pain, uh, we went back to CS because we had already booked our flight, but mm-hmm. we downgraded to the sleaziest hotel in Las Vegas Strip, <laughs> and we could barely pull ourselves out of bed mm-hmm. to, go, to go to the conference because we were so depressed. Mm-hmm. But I managed to get through to one person during that time, and that was the president of Macromedia. Uh, now, Macromedia became Adobe. They merged yeah, and became yeah, Adobe. Yeah, yeah. So it's really, ago. yeah. And the president of Macromedia said, look, we can give you the money, but can you make this work with Flash? That was their new product, Flash, for, for gaming and video online. Right. And they wanted a vehicle like MTV to get it out sure. there. I was like, I didn't know if we could, but absolutely. Like, we will get it working with Flash. Yeah. No question. Hand me the money. Well, I can't give you the money. We have to have a, a established venture capital firm lead the round. Like, I can't sure. write the check without them. Okay. We have a policy. Oh, introduce me. So, Come after CES, like we had to wait. He came, he introduced me to the first VC. 
And mm-hmm. it was a big Sand Hill Road VC. Like those are the top tier VC firms. Yep. Walk in the door. He goes with me. And I'm like, why is he coming with me? And I realized he was coming mm-hmm. with me to watch the reaction of the VC. Yeah. Because if Fifi poked a bunch of holes in my business, I wasn't going to get any more introductions. Yeah, sure. Like this had to work. So I was like, mm-hmm. this is it. Like mm-hmm. this meeting is it. We go in there. Um, you know, uh, the VC's sitting there. I do the pitch and I don't let them know we're like running on fumes. We're about to go bankrupt in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Like I just say MTV, all the, you know, great stuff you do as a startup founder. Right. Of course, I never lie. He never asks, are you running on fumes? So I don't mm-hmm. mention it. Mm-hmm. And and I just give the, the whole pitch about MTV and how great it is. And then he's entirely stone-faced. I couldn't read him at all. And after my entire pitch, he goes, excuse me, gets up and walks out of the room. Oh, shit. <laughs> I look at the, the the president over there and he doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man. He comes back a few minutes later and he sets down a piece of paper and he goes, here's your term sheet. I'm like what? Oh, first meeting? Like he yeah, just pitched. Amazing. I knew, yeah. I'd spent six months with that yeah, other venture yeah. firm. And then here's your term sheet, but I'm not, I'm not only going to give you 5 million, I'm going to give you 7 million at the valuation you asked for. Awesome. I was just like, awesome. I want this deal. I want it. But then I got control of myself. I was Mm -hmm. like, well, first of all, why is he giving me this term sheet? And I realized I had told him something in the pitch. And this is really educational for those people out there. Mm -hmm. I had dropped the line that this is the first company Macromedia, Adobe, is introducing us to. The first VC firm. Meaning... We That's were going right. to go be introduced to other things. He That's did right. not want to want to miss out on the opportunity. No, did he? It's fear and greed. His, your That's fear, right. If you're going to close a deal, yep. the fear of losing the deal has to be greater than their fear That's of right, losing of the course. money. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't close a term sheet like that. Yeah. So I realized at that instant, he didn't want to let me go. If mm-hmm. he let me walk. So I knew I had some leverage. And the second thing I did, I don't want to seem desperate, but I need this to close right away. Like, but without letting him know that I'm absolutely desperate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because I saw what happened last time. So I told him, I said, we don't need seven. We only asked for five. Like I took control. Like I, uh, we only asked for 5 million, but I'll tell you what, we will take 6 million of your money if you can close in two weeks. And he goes, deal. Mm, that's awesome. <laughs> and literally yeah. we had the, the money in the bank two weeks later. He rushed his lawyer because he knew we were going to go to other people. We <laughs> were riding our for lawyer. You. Close the deal. That was the beginning of Spider Dance. Got it. So uh, at a high level, Steve, um, what became of Spider Dance and why? Uh, so, the, you know, the, in the shortest amount of time, you can tell us. I don't want to run okay, out of time. So we ended up closing deals with, for like the weakest link with NBC. We ended up mm-hmm. closing History Channel. We ended okay. up closing Turner Brought. All the networks like Warner Brothers, they're all our customers. We were riding high. We had an amazing buyout offer from a public company. Mm-hmm. But our VCs turned to us. I didn't know what I was doing. They said, no, we're worth like triple this. Do not take that offer. Even though okay. I thought it was pretty damn good. Then yeah. the dot-com bubble burst a few yeah. months later. Like literally after we turned down that buyout offer, everything started collapsing. We, it was just about the time we had to raise more money, our next round. And nobody was giving out any money. Yeah. No, all the TV networks suddenly came back to us and said, we're going to stop paying you. We were paying you hundreds of thousands of dollars for this, but literally we aren't going to run interactive TV shows anymore because we need to cut. Everybody's cutting like an interactive. We don't even believe in this internet stuff. (laughs) They were like, they just, everybody cut us. Like, you know, Scott Sassa, head of NBC came to me and he said, look, we love what you're doing. We love your work. But if you can sell out the advertising, you can, you can keep running the show. What, what do we know about selling out ads? Nobody's buying ads at this time. Like, especially on weird interactive TV shows. So we, uh, literally, and we'd taken out $3 million in debt financing. So we had this huge loan. Mm-hmm. We had this huge deluxe offices in LA and Los Angeles that we were paying for. Yep, All these right employees, like 30 employees, it was brutal. Mm-hmm. We started scaling down and scaling down and cutting people and scaling down until it was just the four. We were like back to the four founders, <laughs> like sitting in this giant office. And what we had to do is I didn't want to go bankrupt because that's like a nightmare. So I went to our landlord and said, look, we will get out of the offices right away if you just let us off the hook. We have no money, trust me. And he knew the dot-com thing was happening. Mm -hmm. He goes, just get out of the offices. I went to the company that had loaned us the $3 million. They were in bankruptcy because they had loaned so much money that dot-coms imploded. And I said, and they had hired an ex-Marine to bully me. 
But I took to this ex-Marine. I was like, look, you're not going to get any money up. We will give you everything we have. We'll give you all our computers, all our furniture, like, and our IP. Just let forgive our debt. And he basically did the deal and we could walk away. So that was the best outcome I could get in a horrible situation. So looking back, do you think, could this have been in any way, shape or form predictable? You know, I asked myself over and over, like my gut was to take that first buyout offer. But it it is of so many first time founders. And then my my rational side said, look, these venture capitalists have done this over Mm -hmm. and over and over. They know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Why am am I really not going to take that? So if I'd followed my gut, I would have taken the money Mm -hmm. and run and been a very happy camper Mm -hmm. in the but I ended up uh, not doing that. And I thought I was doing the logical thing, like (laughs) the the smart thing at the Mm -hmm. time. So was it predictable? Who knows? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not for me. <laughs> yeah. Got it. So, so again, at a high level, I know you, you did two other startups before starting founder space. Can you just give me a high level of what those were? Did you succeed in those? You know, did you sell them? Like what, what, what kind of was the outcome? Yeah. So, uh, for the next startup it was called Xano, became tap 11. Uh, we ended up, uh, it was kind of entertainment combined with social media. Again, mm-hmm. the stuff we ended up being acquired by the YouTube founders. those guys um, and for their next venture. Mm -hmm. And then for the one after that, it was called Rocket On. Crazy idea again. We were doing avatars walking across the internet. So we're doing this online experience (laughs) where anybody could go to any website as an avatar and chat with people like your friends. Yeah, Yeah. it was just, and we had, uh, we raised a lot of capital for that. Actually, we had Mm -hmm. Disney bidding, a huge hedge fund Mm -hmm. ended up doing the deal. But at the end of the day, people all moved to Facebook. And that game didn't work. Like these games are hit or miss. Like like either they take off or they don't. So we just, we actually, in that case, it was another, so I had good experiences about, you kind of checkerboarded good and bad experiences. In that case, we literally uh, gave the money back to the VCs, which is very unusual. Yes, it is. But honestly, people just weren't sticking. Like when you have Mm -hmm. a product, and I learned these hard lessons, like the first product was actually, Spiderdance was a very successful product. We just got killed by the dot-com thing. Mm -hmm. Probably could have been fine. This one, people literally tried it and then they all end up moving to Facebook. So it's the growth stop, growth plan. And there's nothing you can do. You cannot change demand. Like no matter what you, like we kept doing the mistake every entrepreneur makes. We're like, if we add another feature, if we just do this, if we just do that, it'll stick. Never works. No, never works. Right. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, features and functions come later on when you have something very, very well established and people are buying it and yeah. so on. And so, so all these lessons, and yeah. I write about them in my book, Surviving a Startup, because right. I know what it's like to survive and to fail. Yeah. And honestly, these lessons are hard learned. Like I tell entrepreneurs, like, you know, if something isn't working, like no matter how much time you put into it, no matter how passionate you are, no matter how cool it is, like everybody who saw this loved it, like everybody. Mm-hmm. But they just didn't stick. They wanted to be on Facebook, playing games on Facebook, you know, mm-hmm. Farmville. So I just tell people, you know, it doesn't matter. Like you just have to see reality. That's one of yeah. the hardest things for an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. Um, so, so let's just, you know, get back into founder space. How do startups find you? And are they going to the other accelerators or because of your two-week situation, is that really where your sweet spot is? And they're saying, yeah, we can, we don't have, it's not going to cost us as much money. And then how do you choose which ones you're going to accept into the accelerator? So we run a variety, we're uh, run a variety of programs. So instead of having one cookie cutter model, okay. we run different programs for different partners. Sometimes we do specialized partners for like overseas, like South Korea will want just something tailored to South Koreans and we'll just do that. Um, in other cases, um, we have different programs. So we have our educational programs. We have just tons of content on founder space that's free. Like for everybody, because like I believe just, every like internet, they can just log in and see and see some of the content. Yeah, we have an online startup kit, and okay. if if you don't, if a person doesn't have money, it's free. Like literally, Great. all our online programs are free. Mm-hmm. If you don't have money, if you have money, it's a small fee. But if you don't, we say we trust you. Like go in there and do mm-hmm. it, and that's kind of our gift to any starting entrepreneur because I've been there. Yes. In in terms of uh, the uh, the programs where we invest resources, our own money, time, you know everything else. In that case, we're very selective. 
because we have to be. So there are two, there's three different types of programs. There's a free program. There's a programs that are paid and usually it's foreign governments that are paying. We take no equity in the startups. So we just run this as a service. Mm-hmm. And then the third program where we take equity, we take a smaller amount of equity, mm-hmm. usually up to 3.5%. Okay. So it's smaller yeah. because the programs are more compact. It's a different structure. Um, in those cases, um, uh, then we vet very carefully. So we have all these criteria. In in a way, we're earlier stage than most people have gotten angel funding or they at least have a product in development. Some have products launched, but they're earlier stages. They haven't hit series A or even pre-series A. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to help them get to that next level, but they have to be companies we can help. You know, and there are certain companies like if they aren't, if they haven't got it yet, uh, come to one of my courses like online or whatever and try to figure it out. Because but once you get to that level and we say, oh, you have potential, that's when you get in our program. And I can give you the specific criteria if you want. Yeah, well, I'm really I'm really curious because to your point that those that we're going to we're going to take up to three and a half percent, we vet very carefully, of course, right? Yeah. Um, why, why are you going to put your energy into something that's, you know, knowingly going to be a flop? So founders come to you, not all founders can be CEOs. How do you handle that situation? So a lot of it's hard, even with our vetting process, you yeah. cannot know people by the end of the well, two weeks. I mean, listen, there's no panacea out there, right? Yeah. Nothing's a hundred percent. And once you work with somebody, you know them at a much deeper level than interviewing them and Mm -hmm. looking at their background. But I will tell you some of the criteria we use. So, and all VCs use this. So it's really important for people to understand. And every smart angel uses this. Number one, uh, we look at the CEO. Like, is that CEO, uh, are they super curious? Are they Mm -hmm. committed to this? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are they doing something that is different? Than ever. If you're doing what everybody else is doing, you've already lost. Like it's over. Like it's mm-hmm. so hard to make it in this world. You know, you can build a small business or a medium-sized business, but I'm talking venture funded. We're we're all about venture funding. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you don't have some differentiator that is really there, forget it. The most important thing though is the team. Like solopreneurs, really tough for them to succeed. Sure. Like you never, I've never seen a billion dollar company built by one person, yes, even right. if it's Elon Musk who thinks right. he can do anything. Like right. he has other people actually right. doing all the exactly. work that, yep, yep. that he takes credit agree. for. It seems like it's all him, but it's mm-hmm. not. <laughs> so when I, when I, when we get these entrepreneurs, how do I know if it's a great CEO? How? Like I can look at what university they went to, but that's not necessarily that, an indicator. That's not that predictable. I can look at it, whether they yeah. work for Google, but there are a lot right. of people at Google who won't make great entrepreneurs. Right. They're great in a big corporation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I look at the people they attracted. Like, were they able to get not B-list talent, not A-list talent, but like A-plus talent, like to join them when it's just an idea, when they have no money? Could they do that? Somebody who can do that has something special. Like, they have something, they, first of all, they know they need other great talent, which is a a prerequisite. Secondly, they have that leadership thing. And if the CEO is going to do anything, anything else, it's just fill those seats with really talented people. Because they're going to actually do the work. You're not going to do it. You're going to take credit for it. You're going to go out and sell, right? Mm-hmm. So sell me on your idea, on your vision, and then show me that you can deliver by bringing in this team. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, really important too, what proof do they have? Like, have, do they have any idea about their market? Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many people... I don't care what idea you have. You can have the best idea in the world. I did. Like for avatars walking across the internet, seemed like the coolest thing ever. I showed it to everybody. They loved it. It didn't work. Like, is there some demonstrable proof you can give me? Mm -hmm. I think great entrepreneurs are not people with great ideas because so many people start off in one direction and end Mm -hmm. up switching. Right. Like YouTube, the YouTube guys, they start off with a video dating site. Google itself. I know that. That's Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they switch because it was failing. Mm-hmm. YouTube itself started off, this, Larry Page and Sergey Brin told everybody it was a nonprofit because they were making a way for academics to uh, a search engine for yeah. them to find research paper. Uh, wow. In those days, that was super niche. Yeah. Like <clears throat> it, only later did they figure it out. You know, Slack was a game. You know, everybody thinks of Slack, but it was a tool that the game developers built for communication. Sure. So these, you know, I don't care. If the idea is, well, I like a good idea. Like it helps to start with a great idea. But can you go into the marketplace and show me that your idea is not just sounds good, but is good? And that engagement with the customer on a deeper level, 
where you have actually gone and interacted with them. You have found what their pain points are. You know, uh, you have found not just what the pain okay. point are of these customers, but is there a big enough pool of pent up demand there Got to it. propel a small business into a big one? Good. That's the next one. Yeah, you answered my next question. So, yeah. You know, it, it, when you, you, know, you talk about they have a great idea, well, is that is that a great idea that's going to solve a problem that needs to be solved? <laughs> right. And is I, it a need to have or a nice to have? If it's a nice to have, they're dead in the water. Of I, course they are. They're dead. I know that. You know that. Yeah. It, the, the thing a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand, and I actually didn't understand this. Mm -hmm. I thought I create a great product, like my avatars walking on the web, which seems so cool, mm -hmm. and demand will come. I can mm -hmm. manufacture demand. I can make people love this. You cannot do that. Like, you, no matter how brilliant, you could build the best, perfect product in the world. But if people aren't already, if they don't have a need for it, if they don't care about it, if it doesn't excite them, then mm -hmm. you have nothing. Right. You know, you have a perfect yeah. product that's going nowhere. Mm -hmm. So it's not always like build the best mousetrap. People have to need mousetraps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> First of all, they have to need those mousetraps. If you're building some, uh, you know, a uh, raccoon trap and they don't really care <laughs> about trapping raccoons, right. it can be the best raccoon right. trap ever. How does Founder Space make money? So uh, we have made money in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. So one is our equity, we have different revenue streams. So our equity right. stake, right. we balance that out with the services we provide uh, the, to governments and, and, and corporations to train entrepreneurs. Got it. And we do, uh, we have done very high level corporate consulting for companies like Qualcomm, Huawei, Bosch, mm -hmm, you know, on mm -hmm. their incubator programs going in there with them. Got it. And, and that tends to be, you know, they're big global corporations, very lucrative. So the balance of those three are where we make our revenue. That's really interesting. What would you say, what bugs you about your industry, the accelerator, the incubator industry, if anything? So there are a lot of fly-by-night operations mm -hmm. that don't really uh, have teams that have done it. Like I've been there. I like did it like, and mm -hmm. every, every instructor I hire, not every mentor, mentors have specific backgrounds like mm -hmm. legal or whatever they're doing. Sure. Um, but every instructor we hire has been an entrepreneur in the trenches, actually done it. Like they're not, uh, there are not people who have not run startups with venture funding. So that is really important for us. Me, myself, my partners have it. Um, that is key. The other thing is, does the program match what the entrepreneur needs? Mm -hmm. A lot of times it doesn't. Like I love to tell entrepreneurs, honestly, if you know what you're doing, you don't need an incubator or accelerator. You do not. You don't join it just mm -hmm. for demo day. So a lot mm -hmm. of them join it just for demo day. Like if you know what you're doing and you have something good, you can get in front of every investor sure. today. Right. There is no problem. Right. Like in investors, you can meet investors, just hustle. Like, and you mm -hmm. still have to hustle. Those demos, they like Y Combinator really uh, has a halo effect. So mm -hmm. they can deliver on their demo day. But right. a lot of a lot of these incubators, you can't, they don't deliver on their demo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful. Ask the entrepreneurs who've graduated the programs, like mm -hmm. really important. Like those mm -hmm. are the people who will tell you like, don't. So I, uh, it bugs me. Uh, there are a lot of them, uh, that kind of provide generic services. They don't have people can give you real insights. So when I, when we bring in anybody, either I'm on their board of advisors or they're in our program right. and I work deeply with them, I personally give them advice. And I don't sugarcoat it. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not there to cheerlead, but right. I do not, I'm not there to tear them down either. Right, right, I don't right, believe right. that it just make humiliate them will mm -hmm, help them. Mm -hmm. I'm there really to figure out the puzzle of their business and try. And from my experience, my own experience of working with all these entrepreneurs now mm -hmm. to see whether there's really a business model behind there, or whether there's really mm -hmm. customer demand and what do they need to do to prove that not to the venture capitalists, but to themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, well, how can they prove that to themselves? Like, and spending all this time on a business plan isn't as important as the experiments you run, what you actually do in the field mm -hmm. is the real, and can you communicate that? And can you put that down succinctly, like uh, in a way and communicate it to other people, employees, investors, right. the press, other customers, right. that is the, that is what startups need. I agree. Uh, so we had talked earlier, um, uh, prior to part of the podcast that when the pandemic hit last year, you pretty much closed up your San Francisco operation. And how many full-time employees did you have? How many did you have to 
let go or furlough or however you want to call it. And and where are you now in rebuilding that, Steve? Oh, it's, it, it was it was really hard because we had some people, our instructors, like we, uh, our instructors, and they were our like full time people. And then we had a lot of mentors who were part time, like over three hundred mentors. Yeah, yeah. But all of those people, they lived off the ecosystem. Like this was mm. their. We were a hub for them. We were really important for them. Oh, sure, yeah. And, you know, we've done a lot of online stuff since then, but honestly, it's much harder to do. And not in on if you're an entrepreneur, you can join an online program. But I tell you, the entrepreneurs come to it to be in person. They come to it to engage because they can get a lot online already. Like there's Mm -hmm. tons of free stuff online. Like why do you join an incubator? Because they want the community. They want to be with the other entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They want to be with us as people and us to really talk to them. We can do, we've done programs online all over the world during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. but I would say, uh, you know, they're hard to monetize. Like it's hard to get people to pay for them and it's hard to give the same value that they Mm -hmm. would give. And Mm -hmm. so we haven't been charging equity or anything like that. A lot of our programs have been free. So, uh, uh, but fortunately, uh, we do have incubators open overseas. Right Right now, China is a walled garden in terms of many ways, right? Internet, uh, politically, but Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. COVID-wise, like they've kept COVID out. Like people are not wearing masks and doing business there because they really have squashed it. But you could only do that in a country like China, Mm -hmm. um, not in the U.S. And (laughs) uh, for for many reasons. Yes. But um, our incubators are all open there. They're all open and fully functional. So I haven't been there, but (laughs) they've been running. Wow, that's really interesting. So, so I mean, do you, do you know what the plan is to to build back your you know your office here in the states? In the We're area? figuring that out right now. We're okay. monitoring this second wave of COVID. You know, it's it's really expensive to get a lease in the city, even with the reduced prices now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to be sure that you're not going to be shut down after signing a three year lease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, six months into it, mm-hmm. because that's pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. We had to go through that already. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really hard, especially on my partner who owned all this, you know, who was right. the one, the leaseholder and had to negotiate with the landlord and, oh my God. So we're being very cautious. So we're mm-hmm. still continuing online. And then we will look at options, like which options we do, mm-hmm. who we partner with, what, what we do. Uh, like I said, overseas, we're still doing, we're still running programs. So I honestly don't know. And this is being a startup, right? I've been a startup before. I do this because I love doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to... I do it in an unintelligible way, unintelligent way. But as long as I'm engaging with startups, which I've continued to do, sure. uh, it's rewarding enough for me. And I'll just let fate determine where yeah. we're, we're rolling with the punches. Like, yeah. like Have you considered, it's just, I just sort of had like an epiphany. Yeah. Have you considered opening in a different city where you're not dealing with what California's dealing with? Like, you know, Denver, like Boulder, for example. Yeah, there are a lot of cities that are more lenient. Like right. San Francisco is one of the strictest cities in the right. country. Yeah. So they shut everything I mean, down. They shut it down. You know, um, Boulder, I don't believe is ever going to become Silicon Valley. I think we're probably, they're probably maybe 20 years behind Silicon Valley, but, but you know, there's opportunity there. Yeah, Boulder. Uh, you, so we uh, have considered that, although the Bay Area is my home. Yeah, and well, some right. of it, some of running founder space is honestly at my stage, it's a lifestyle thing. Like yeah. I don't want to have to commute. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want to have to, you know, we do have partners overseas because I couldn't do those. Right. Yes. And it opened up a whole, and so many of our customers were overseas. That's where we really made mm-hmm. our business, made our name. We did that, but they run those shows. Like yes. I'm, we're kind of layered on top of them, but they're doing the day to day. So I don't have to worry about that. Uh, we have had offers across the United States and we are considering, but even with COVID, like with my own situation, you know, I don't want to get COVID. So I'm still being careful. You know, I've been vaccinated, but at the same time, you can still even get it when you're vaccinated. So I've tended to err on the careful side. And so Mm -hmm. some of that reflects our business. I'm not out just to maximize our profit. I'm also, you know, concerned with my own health and the health of the people. Listen, that's a perfectly reasonable concern to have. Yeah. If somebody listening to this is thinking, oh, I, I'd like to get involved as a mentor or there's some interest, really interesting things. I think I could provide value here. What, what would you suggest that person do? Oh, so if anybody wants to get involved as a mentor, if somebody wants to submit their business plan or take advantage of all our free stuff, mm-hmm. even better, mm-hmm. uh, just go to founderspace.com. Like okay. literally my contact, there's a contact form on the front page. You can click the button, okay. goes to a contact form. If you put my name in it, it will come to me. Like I respond. 
to the email. Can't always help everybody, but I do respond. You will get a response. Well, that's fantastic. And and before we uh, finish up here, I do want to put a plug in that you've written three books. You I have talked about been, one of them. I've Tell been me a little, just a tiny bit about the other two. Yeah, I've been very prolific. So mm-hmm. uh, my uh, first book, Make Elephants Fly, is all about the process of radical innovation. So it's how startups innovate. Mm-hmm. So Sue, if you have this, the elephant is your big idea, how do you get it off the ground? Sure. What do you do? So that book has done very well, especially like in China, like it's the best sell. All my books are bestsellers in really? China. That's so yeah, interesting. I'm, it's weird. I yeah. went to China at just the right time. I became super famous there, like super famous. Wow. <laughs> uh, and my books I'll be are asking like, for your autograph here any minute. I think. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not as famous <laughs> in the US. Like I, I'm teasing. well known in Silicon Valley, but yeah, outside God, Silicon Valley, you. not yeah. as not as crazy. So, um, so Make Elephants Fly, then Surviving a Startup, published by HarperCollins, mm-hmm. you know, is, is my right. new book. And I have another new book because of COVID. I was doing a lot of writing. Uh, it, it, it just came out. It's called The Five Forces That Change Everything. And it is, my, it is my passion. It is about how technology is going to transform humanity. Yeah. in our lives. Yeah. So what I really tried to do is there's all this new technology, brain-computer interfaces, literally sticking chips in your brain. What does that mm-hmm. mean? Uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, gene editing, nanotech, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of these technologies create fundamental moral and ethical issues that we, how are they going to enter society? What's mm-hmm. going to be their impact? But also what are the key decisions humanity must make right now to use these responsibly? Because these yes. technologies are exponentially more powerful than anything we've done in the past. Yeah. I mean, if somebody hacks your smartphone, it's a real pain, right? They can steal yeah. your identity. Somebody hacks your brain with a brain computer chip, they can steal your actual identity. <laughs> like, right. you know, this will be coming. I've worked on this technology. It is coming. If people, we have to, we're going to be injecting nanoparticles into our bodies, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and into uh, the world. Mm-hmm. What do these things do? What will yeah. be the repercussions? Could they run them up? Gene right. editing. We, there are gene drives out there. You can unleash these animals that breed and with genetic alterations, hugely impactful yeah. designer babies. All these issues fascinated me because I work with entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and scientists all over the world and I wanted to explore them. So I spent a lot, big part of COVID researching and writing this book. Well, that's really interesting. Gosh. Well, Steve Hoffman, uh, founder and CEO of Founders Space. Thanks so much for joining me. This was a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Carol. I love your interview style. Well, Very my direct. My pleasure. Really, really, like you get at it. I love it. You're not shy at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.